Um, welcome, colleagues, friends, students, and uh, distinguished speaker. Um, my name is Bert Smith. I'm the professor of classical archaeology, and it's a great pleasure to introduce the uh, the sixth annual Haynes uh, lecture uh, and our uh, guest speaker, Larissa Bonfante. First, a few words about the um, uh, the occasion. The, ha the Haynes lecture honors Sybil Haynes, one of the major figures in modern etruscology, who has done so much to put the, the subject on the map, both in her writing, one thinks of the Etruscan Civilization book, 2000, and reissued and rewritten in 2005, uh, put it, the subject on the map, both in her writing and in Oxford, and uh, especially here in the, in the Classics faculty, where, of course, Etruscan studies most naturally belong. Classics here has a, um, a broad vision, from Mons Graupius to Gandara, and Italy before Rome is near its center and uh, near its beginning. The Haynes Lecture is a grand occasion in our calendar in which the highest profile Etruscan and Italic scholars come and share exciting new finds and uh, new perspectives on a culture that's both, both within and a little bit apart from the mainstream of classical archaeological cultures. The lectures, of course, are for themselves, but at the start they were also to raise interest in establishing a whole new post in the, in the subject. And thanks to Sybil, the Normanby Trust, and Somerville College, and other private donors, we succeeded a year ago in precisely that goal, and we now have our very own Sybil Haynes Lecturership in Etruscan and Italic Archaeology and Art, based at Somerville, and its first holder is Dr. Charlotte Potts, uh, I'm sure many of you here know, a noted expert in early Latin temples and the, uh, the archaeology of early Italian religion. By early, I mean 7th, 6th centuries. It has been a, a long journey to get here. Sybil has been a wonderfully steady and goal-directed driver towards this, uh, uh, this target. It was a dream started in the crash year of uh, 2008 uh, against all the odds. The Normanbys helped hugely. Somerville, a college with a great archaeological tradition, has also been a major enabling factor attaching to the post the Catherine and Leonard Woolley Fellowship. But the most important enabling device, if that's the right word, has been Sybil herself. Her close engagement with the subject and her outstanding generosity have brought us this, uh, this big prize, a whole new post, the Haynes Lectureship. There'll be too many to list, but I'm uh, delighted to see uh, Lapel Kornitsky here this evening in the audience as a representative of the uh, uh, Norbenby family whose contribution turned an idea into a permanent post. Our speaker this evening, Larissa Bonfante, is one of the most, uh, one of the, the foremost world authorities on Etruscan culture and a prolific and influential uh, researcher and teacher. Um, she's based at uh, NYU a professor in the classics department, which was ahead of its time in having a card-carrying etruscologist on its uh, on its faculty. She has a, an imposing profile in all aspects of uh, Etruscan life, art, afterlife, and mythology. I give you a a, a, a brief listing of some of the uh, uh, the titles of her uh, her books, which give you a, 
a good idea of her, uh, her range and varied interests. Out of Etruria, Etruscan Influence, North and South, 1981. The Etruscan Language, 1983, uh, a second edition in 2002, written with her father, Giuliano Bonfanti. Etruscan Life and Afterlife, 1986. Etruscan Myth, 2006. And recently, The Barbarians of Ancient Europe, Realities and Insurrections, uh, 2011. Her first book was on Etruscan dress uh, in 1975, updated in 2003. And her latest uh, book, forthcoming soon, will be on Etruscan undress, nudity as costume in the ancient Mediterranean. Um, Larissa has a big impact, too, in, uh, in, uh, in journal literature. Uh, she's written a lot on Etruscan women and uh, Etruscan couples' relations, uh, husband and wife relations, and uh, mother-daughter relations. She has a great teacher award at NYU and the prestigious gold medal of the uh, AIA, the American Arch Institute of Archaeology, in 2002 for distinguished archaeological achievement. She's established the, um, the website Etruscan News uh, and remains in her, her person and restless intellect a vital link between what's new and exciting in uh, Etruscan studies and the Anglophone world here and in the, uh, in the US. This is a very uh, important role in keeping us all uh, up to date. Um, her most recent project, she just told me, was, uh, is on uh, Etruscan images and translations, which uh, will be a book uh, based out of her recent uh, uh, Jerome lectures. Uh, today she's going to talk, tell us about the, the connections between uh, the North and the Classical World via the uh, Etruscans, and her title is Runes and Amber, the Etruscans as Mediators between the Classical World and Central Europe. Melissa. Thank you very much. Uh, that was a wonderful introduction, and I'm glad you mentioned Etruscan news. I was hoping Charlotte, is it is it available outside the door? I, I would, you know, it, it's wonderful to publish it, and it's very difficult to distribute. So this is a, a place I very much uh, want to uh, have it um, available. Um, so I am so delighted to be here in Oxford. Uh, this is my first time here, and I've been warmly welcomed by old friends. I, some of whom are here tonight, and new colleagues. Uh, I especially want to thank Sybil Haynes, uh, who founded the lectures, and also honor uh, Dennis Haynes, whom I remember with great pleasure, especially one Sunday when we all spent the morning over New York brunch in New York. A wonderful memory. And I thank Charlotte Potts for making all the arrangements. I know how difficult this is. Uh, Sybil especially asked me to speak on this topic, in which I've been interested actually since 1981 in out of Etruria, uh, and I'm very glad to do it because um, th there have been many new finds, and um, I, I hope people like the, the title, uh, uh, Runes and Amber, and I will go into that in a minute. Um, I've written on Etruscan influence in the north, mostly but not only in Alpine sigilla art. And the question I asked myself um, 
after I'd, I'd done that, was why and how uh, did this influence uh, go north? Um, one answer, of course, is, is the geography. The title reflects my focus on the north-south aspect of Etruscan mediation and influences brought and taken. Uh, I've um, often uh, described Italy as a funnel, uh, but actually it was more a north-south route. And um, uh, as today, you know, when, when there's the north-south road uh, all the way down to um, uh, Sicily, actually, uh, almost, and uh, when that breaks down, everything breaks down. And even today, the geography of Italy uh, really determines its history and its contacts with other people. Uh, it's, it was centrally located, had great harbors, it was metal-rich and attracted. Um, people from the east, Odysseus, uh, went west uh, after his uh, after being in, in, the, uh, in Troy, and um, they uh, attracted traders and adventurers. Um, so I'm going to uh, talk about the amber route. Uh, this was a two-way road. The Amber Route went went back to at least 2,000 years, um, 2,000 BC, actually. Uh, it, it went back to the late Bronze Age, and uh, it led eventually south, deep into Italy itself, all the way from the Baltic. Uh, there has been some interesting scientific, very, very important scientific work, proving that all the amber that's found in Greece and in, in Europe and uh, very far east and, and west was all from the Baltic. The uh, Etruscan influence, as we'll see, is mostly from the 7th century. Of course, that's when they're Etruscans, and when we find out they're Etruscans because they're writing Etruscan. Um, so the, the a second answer as to uh, how and why is because the Etruscans had actually adapted uh, many of the classical Greek aspects of culture and, and changed them and really made them more easily available to the North. And that was also because uh, their society was very similar. Uh, they, uh, the, the, the great aristocratic families in, uh, in Etruria that lasted all the way to the end of their uh, civilization, uh, had these um, rich, wealthy uh, lords who had craftsmen who made sophisticated uh, materials and uh, objects, and the, the, the feudal, they're called very, very often called feudal societies uh, in the north, had their lords uh, who wanted to import uh, Mediterranean material to show off their wealth, power, and status. Um, so there are two roads uh, leading uh, from the Mediterranean north, and I will be dealing with the Alpine route uh, here. Uh, the other route, as you see from this map, here are the Etruscans who look an awful lot like the color of the, Carth of the <laughs> Carthaginians at that point, but uh, no, they're not. And as you see, there, the Alpine route is, uh, 
is uh, brown for the Etruscans. And this is the sea route, which is uh, the Greek, everything on the west goes up by way of Marseille, and then you get the fantastic uh, Vix crater um, in, in, uh, near the Loire. Uh, so I won't be dealing with that. My, my colleague, Rana Marique, has been writing very interesting things about that. Uh, and that's mostly Greek material, although there is uh, Etruscan uh, also, uh, and there's Etruscan Bukhara, whereas the Alpine route has mostly the bronzes. Now, one of the, one of the um, ad adaptations that the Etruscans made is the symposium. They adopted the symposium, um, but they exported, they, they used and exported uh, Etruscan uh, symposium wear, uh, like the famous Schnabel Kane uh, that is distributed all over Central Europe. I often think that because the earlier peoples loved birds, you know, they liked this, this shape of the, uh, uh, of the bronze um, uh, jug that was used for the symposium. Uh, and then another, uh, setting the stage, uh, another adaptation that they made that was very important is uh, nudity, <laughs> you know, was a very important aspect of uh, Greek culture, and it was adopted absolutely nowhere else uh, in, in real life. It was adopted in art, it had to be, because it was classical. You know, if you had classical art, you had uh, the nude uh, figures. But it was not adapted in real life. And here is a chorus from about uh, 530 BC. You know the um, Athens um, and Anabisos chorus. And uh, the, uh, you, you see that uh, there's a colleague who's working on, uh, uh, Greek courtship scenes, and I asked him whether, you know, the sort of big hips of this man don't show a fully grown uh, warrior, and in fact the inscription says he died in the front lines of, of war. Uh, but um, but no, uh, Lear, Andrew Lear said, no, no, he was an Aromanus, he was, you know, sexy looking, and, and poetry talks about their thighs, whereas uh, in um, it, the Italic uh, Capistrano warrior. And, and by the way, the, the, the image, you know, the monumental image of the uh, male figure was really adopted, uh, as, as uh, really all over, all over. Uh, very often, they, as you'll see, they had the steely that they started from. And then, you know, the steely became more, um, uh, more, um, uh, curvaceous and, and human. So uh, the Capistrano warrior, as you see, is armed. In other words, there are two things that you do with nudity, even in art, because it's adopted very reluctantly in art. You either cover it up with armor, or we'll see another thing you could do, something else that you could do with it. Anyway, here's the Capistrano warrior, fully armed, with a very uh, large uh, hat or helmet, and you'll see this this idea of the very large hat or helmet remains as a kind of a, a status symbol, uh, really throughout uh, many cultures and, and much art. Um, 
And this is a rather frequent, this is a rather recent find, the Glauberg statue, uh, immediately baptized, as you can see, or as you can imagine, uh, the Mickey Mouse, you know, uh, because of <coughs> his large ears. And uh, here I am, and it, it's very big. I mean, it's big. This gives you an idea of its size. And it's, uh, it's been set up now in a museum at Glauberg, because Glauberg itself was a center uh, of, of uh, you know, an important settlement in Oppidum. And it, there were actually fragments of four of these uh, near the mound, but only one was completely um, uh, uh, reconstructed. And so I think this is important to remember that, that you know, there was a, uh, it was a series. Uh, so here he is, and uh, here is the front and the back, as you see, a very uh, decorated um, uh, cuirass and armor, and he's holding the Celtic um, oval shield, uh, and uh, the Mickey Mouse ears are really not ears at all. They are leaves and a sign, apparently, of divinity. So on the side, you can see one of the stele that were sort of forerunners, you know, of these poroi. They, they, they sort of built or, or continued of that tradition. Uh, in, in the middle, uh, you have that. And then on the right, I won't be talking about Celtic art. I mean, that's so different uh, that I won't go into that. Uh, but... Um, but there you have an example of Celtic art. And uh, those of you who have been to the Vikings, as I was yesterday, will have seen some of the really amazing, you know, there's the, the, the image of Christ all sort of surrounded by Celtic you know, ribbons, which I think is very impressive. So uh, here we are at Glauberg, uh, looking south. Uh, and this was a fortified settlement. Uh, and the the um, mounds were excavated in the 1990s, so not that long ago. And the museum has just opened a couple of years ago, actually. Um, so we see the mounds there. Uh, we see the mound from the museum here. And here is the mound. Uh, and one of the things that's really remarkable about this is that it's a burial mound, uh, and it, it, it had these statues, uh, probably on it because you see that you saw their feet, uh, the feet are broken off. Uh, but then leading to the mound, they excavated this, this very large processional route that led you to the, the, the funerary mound. So this was something that was quite important. Um, and this is a comparison of what was inside some of these mounds uh, at, at, at Hochdorf. And again, a wonderful museum, I recommend. Um, and there was a very large man. I mean, he was tall. He was six feet two. <laughs> so he really was tall. And the couch is uh, nine, nine uh, feet long. And has a curved back. And we'll see many, many uh, curved backs on uh, what they call thrones, um, probably like the throne that Aramnestos um, uh, 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 was, was, uh, we're told he um, donated it at um, Olympia. Um, 
Then there's a very large cauldron, not as large as the Vicks cauldron. When you get the Etruscan news, you'll see uh, how big the Vicks cauldron is. <laughs> it's even bigger. Um, but what's interesting about this cauldron is that it was used for mead. So here we have a rather, you know, local, um, a, a local um, um, context for one of these lords. You see, he's drinking mead. He's offering mead. There are the nine horns on the side, the drinking horns, uh, to his his retainers um, on on the, the the cart. And this is one of many um, pieces of of, uh, uh, of, of uh, by the way, the, the couches is of bronze and decorated, uh, but the cart obviously is wooden, and inside it uh, is a set of dishes that he needed to, you know, impress and and, and uh, uh, host his his retinue and his people. So uh, the, the the whole. Um, Chamber tomb has been reconstructed, and uh, it dates from the late Colstadt period. Um, by this time, the Etruscan influence has come in. Um, already found uh, earlier was the Hirschlanden warrior, Hesse, not too far away. And you see that he, too, has lost his feet. So he was apparently on top of a funeral mound. Um, he has a belt and a dagger, but you see he's ethephallic. So the other thing you can do with nudity is use it for magical purposes. You, you, uh, nudity is, you know, it's so strange. I mean, anything really strange and shocking can be used for magical purposes, a patropaic, and, uh, we, we can also remember that in the literature, we're told about the Romans fighting against the Gauls, and the Gauls are, have stripped naked for fighting. But they're very white, with the blonde hair, and uh, gold torques, and of course, why would they, and, and they're white. Whereas the Greeks, you see, exercised in the nude, and so they were nicely tanned and fit. But the, the reason they did that, of course, was because they wanted the shock effect and also the magical uh, quality of it. Um, so here he is on top of the mound, but it's been noted that the mound is actually rather small. Uh, and, uh, and here's London. It's rather small, and so uh, they think that the, the person in the mound was not important enough to have the statue on top of the mound, so that this must refer back to the lord of the area rather than uh, to the uh, deceased inhabiting the tomb. So, now we come to the runes in amber. Um, at the Vikings show, there was a rune. I was surprised not to see more of them, um, because it was an aspect of Viking um, you know, culture, that they had runes. From... Um, from about the 7th century. Well, they, it's certain that they come from Italy. Uh, there has been a, a discussion as to where they come from, but clearly they go way north, way north, and uh, they were used in some of these Scandinavian countries through the 19th century. In the 19th century. They still use them 
you know, for ritual, for, for epitaphs, you know, for, for, um, um, uh, inscriptions that had a kind of special archaic, uh, quality. So, uh, there you see where they ended up. Where did they start? Well, here we have, uh, the way they're used. Again, I think magical. But it's not that the runes themselves were more magical than other writing. Every writing is, is magical when it first starts. I mean, it's, 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 you know, you write down spells and, uh, it, it, incantations. I mean, there's always a magical quality, uh, that remains. And, uh, what the, uh, uh, men did was very often have their, um, armor, um, incised, either with their name or else shoot straight, you know, <laughs> with the message to the, to the, uh, um, uh, Spear, or you know something like protect me, not in so many words, but on the helmet. So here is the runic alphabet, the Futhark, um, and uh, the name of it is sort of like Alpha Beta. You know, it's the first two letters. The Futhark is named after the first six letters. And by the way, I'm not a runic specialist, but I'm so interested in these two roots, you know, the, the runes going north and the amber coming south, that I wanted to look into it. And I'm not even a, a linguist. So, uh, Futhark, uh, and it came from Italy. I mean, the, the alphabet came from Italy. But was it Roman or was it North Etruscan? Now, many, many uh, scholars have thought it was Roman because that's where the evidence comes from. You don't have runes until they get written down on stone uh, by Roman times. And the reason is because uh, they were obviously meant to be incised. And everybody agrees about that. But they're incised. Uh, as you see, they all have um, straight lines or diagonal lines. And the reason was because they were originally carved on wood. And we don't have, of course, so of course the, the wooden you know, uh, runes have not uh, survived, uh, but um, the, uh, the, we have these later examples, and they're obviously meant to be carved originally on wood. Uh, now, Tacitus has a wonderful description of a kind of divination that was still carried on in his time. Uh, he says, you know, this is how they do the divination. He says, a priest uh, takes uh, uh, little bronze pieces of wood, slivers of wood, and then uh, that have signs on them, signs. And he throws them on a clean, uh, you know, on a, on a sheet or uh, a cloth. And then they pick the first three and read those. And that is, you know, the, the divination. Um, now, it's interesting that uh, it is also the women who pick them up. And women were particularly good at all kinds of magic. But runes, you know, when... Uh, uh, I was very intrigued to find that uh, D.H. Lawrence calls, you know, one of the characters in, in um, um, Sons and Lovers, uh, Gudrun. 
And the reason she's called Good Rune is because she's good at reading runes. You know, I mean, because women were good at reading runes. Uh, so the the, the 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 magical aspect, you know, it's so funny because in California they still have runes and rune reading and books telling you what the runes mean. You know, um, but um, runes on the Frank's casket. I just love this this monument, and so let me go through it very quickly because it shows you a little bit of the very uh, different um, uh, kinds of, of um, uh, cultural influences that existed all at the same time, uh, and the runes going through all of those. Of course, the Frank's casket in the British Museum uh, has these inscriptions, and on the um, about 700 A.D., and on the front it has a very strange pairing because it has a local Norse legend about Wayland the Smith, who was mistreated by a king, and so he took a very terrible vengeance on him. He killed and beheaded the son, uh, as you'll see in a minute, and and um, uh, raped uh, the, the the daughter and made her pregnant. And on the right, you have the three kings. <laughs> so uh, there they are, and there are uh, in runic inscriptions describing the the, uh, the action. And over the magi, it's written magi. See that, right? It's a caption. Uh, down below, actually, there's a uh, rather my mysterious riddle that talks about. That, that gives you the answer as to what the casket is made of. It's made of whalebone, and the inscription tells you about whale hunting. So here is that, that uh, terrible scene with Wayland. Uh, you know, uh, at his feet lies the beheaded uh, corpse, and before him uh, on the right is the, the daughter that he's going to uh, uh, seduce and ruin. Uh, then you have Roman history, the capture of Jerusalem, I mean, uh, history, um, uh, the, the um, um, capture of Jerusalem, and then upper right, you have actually Roman script, and Latin, hic fugiant Jerusalem, um, and then you have uh, the brother, Agil, on the right, um, the bowman protecting perhaps a woman inside the the fortification, uh, and there the uh, inscription reads Agil, and uh, the the uh, um, he, he is protecting the castle as a bowman. Um, you have Romulus and Remus, <laughs> uh, and that's that's a lot. But I, I find it quite fascinating as a kind of a mixture, you know. Uh, almost a summary, right, of uh, uh, culture, sort of like the great books. <laughs> uh, so now the amber roots. Uh, one of the things that, that, that I was intrigued by when I did this too is how long some of these aspects last. You know, the runes go on and on in the far north, and amber, as you'll see, uh, goes down very far. So here is the amber root. Um, the, in Greece and farther east, they stopped using amber around 700 BC, and that's about when the the I mean the Etruscans were already doing it, but that's really when it started to go strong. Uh, and um, the 
as you see, it all comes from the Baltic, the, the, the two areas up there, excuse me, it comes from the Baltic, and it comes down. Um, oh, the, the, the reason it probably stopped in Greece and, and to the east is because the route was interrupted. I mean, by, by Scythian, you know, uh, uh, war, battles, and whatnot. But in, in, um, in Etruria, it was going strong, and it came, as you see, right down into Italy, and we'll see how that happened. Of course, it united, you know, the great lords in the different uh, countries of the Amber Route, and then it came down into uh, the Alpine passes to come into Italy and to be um, uh, bought and, and um, used by the Etruscans. One thing about amber, too, is very light, so it's easy to travel. It's easy to, to carry, you know. You can carry great, uh, great uh, values <laughs> no, uh, in amber. Uh, in the Alpine passes, but I'm, I'm told this is not true everywhere, uh, it's, the amber is used together with glass, with glass paste which they learned to use from the uh, Phoenicians. And I find this very interesting because obviously, you know, as Faye Cousy, who uh, wrote, uh, who published the uh, Getty Catalog, says, you know, jewelry was never jewelry. It was never just jewelry. It was, you know, a sign of, of your, your status. And it was magical and it was medicinal. I mean, amber was medicinal. You know. uh, the um, yeah, I mean, they, they actually discussed this in ancient medicine. So, uh, amber and glass was together. Now, the name of amber, of course, is electron. And uh, that gave eventually the name to electricity. And it's called electron, uh, or electricity is called electricity because it harks back to those magnetic kind of power of, of Amber. So when they were looking for a name for this, you know, discovery, uh, they called it electricity. So why, you know, the, the red, yellows, and browns of amber? I mean, I'm just personally interested in this. I don't think anybody else is terribly interested. But it intrigues me what, why that's paired so often with a yellow, blue, and, and white um, uh, glass paste. And I remember in, in one lecture, somebody said, well, maybe, you know, uh, glass, and maybe it has to do with the conductor, you know, of electricity, where you get the red and then the white. I don't know, but somehow, somehow it was used together. And I remember my mother used to say that in her time, you never should wear pearls, you know, without uh, something else. That pearls brought tears, uh, but um, that um, if if you have a little, you know, diamond clip or something at the end, then that kills the you know, <laughs> the curse or whatever. Uh, here's a very bad map, but you'll excuse it because you see coming down, um, you know, from the top of the Adriatic, you come down into, uh, into Italy here. And along the Amber route, there are many, uh, very interesting settlements. Um, there is one Fratesina where they actually have a glass factory as well as, you know, right in situ, uh, 12th century. And they're working amber, they're making glass to go with it. Uh, then you have also in the, uh, in, in the Veneto, of course, you have uh, this 
new, fairly new excavation of Verrucchio, um, which is right there. So there's a lot of, of uh, activity, you know, at the entrance of Amber into Italy. And then Amber goes across, and it, it's, even today it's very difficult to cross Italy. You know, it's easy to go north and south, hard to go uh, east and west. But it crosses over and goes into the wealthy Etruscan uh, tombs. Uh, but it also continues uh, way, right along the Adriatic coast, uh, Picenum, and then in, by the 6th or 4th century, it lands in Basilicata, which is way in the south, uh, and that is very interesting that that should happen. Um, so, um, around 600, instead of just making beads and necklaces and sometimes fibulas, they started to carve the amber. And um, it was um, it, it was as though the magic of the amber material was sort of enhanced by the images. Now, here I have the two, you know, more, most uh, ambitious pieces of amber, one for the Metropolitan Museum, uh, showing... Uh, well, a man and a woman on a couch, or male and a female on the couch, usually called Turan and Atunis. Uh, she's got her little servant, it's very ambitious, uh, swan on her back. Uh, and the, the woman, the, the female figure, is above. And of course, if it's Turan with her lover Adonis, uh, Turan is, would be Venus or Aphrodite, then that makes sense. Uh, in the British Museum, there is a so-called Sater and Menad, and I wonder if it's a coincidence that in both cases you have uh, the woman taller. You very often have in Villanova art uh, the, the female taller than the man. So this was uh, when you started to carve amber, and as you see, Falconara and Kona's on the Adriatic coast. Uh, the Sater and Menad uh, here are said to be from uh, the the Adriatic coast also. Um, I mentioned Verrucchio on this amber route at entering into uh, Italy. That is a fabulous, fascinating site because somehow or other um, up the, the tombs uh, were, were, um, were uh, excavated, uh, were originally placed in uh, a special, you know, moist moist earth, and so wood was preserved, um, amber, of course, was beautifully preserved, you find lots of amber, you find wooden thrones, wooden furniture, and so this is really remarkable, and it reminds us how much wood was used, you know, how little of it uh, is, is preserved, and how very much it was, to, it was used, not just in the north, but everywhere. I mean, you know, Virgil's shepherds would, would drink from uh, wooden bowls, you know, uh, just everywhere. So um, th th this, th this was a completely unusable um, uh, uh, woman's uh, amber spindle. Uh, you couldn't possibly use it, it's too delicate. So they found lots and lots and lots of them in women's tombs, in upper-class women's tombs, very clearly. It's a status symbol. So here we have the amber now going down, way down, into an area uh, where you have wealthy, uh, you know, lords and ladies. Um, 
and where they are going to use amber at a time when it's really not, not used by their neighbors, the Greeks, or the uh, Etruscans. Right? Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about what the workshops were, um, whether they were Etruscan ivory carvers or who they were. It's very clear, however, that uh, they, th these workshops soon developed their own style, and you see the very large eyes, which are clearly magical, you know, for magical purposes. These were amulets. Uh, and there are many wings. Amber in southern Italy, many wings. Uh, here is a, a, an amber pendant, a, a siren or a sphinx. Uh, here is a winged warrior. Um, this is unusual and be carved on both sides. They're usually flat, so they lie against the skin, like this wonderful um, um, uh, sphinx. Uh, and here you see it actually worn on the necklace. So there's some wonderful ones as symbols of Dionysus, an amber dolphin that looks just golden, and a grape cluster. Uh, and then uh, the, the uh, result of all of this amber going south and runes starting to go north. Not really, because the citulas were these buckets that were again, originally uh, meant to use to store wine or distribute wine uh, the way a Greek crater would be. Yeah. And they were um, decorated with embossing of scenes of daily life or ritual. This is the earliest one, around 600 BC, uh, the Benvenuti Situla. Uh, and here is the distribution. As you see, they cluster around this 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 root, uh, and they sort of represent the Etruscan influence right you know, uh, north of Italy. In um, uh, there, there are some in Italy. There's one in Bologna, one in Este, uh, and then they go into Switzerland and Austria and modern uh, uh, Slovenia. Uh, and this is Sicula art, even though they spoke different languages. Uh, we don't know what, what different languages they, they but but uh, they were different peoples, but they all shared this kind of art. And uh, here we have uh, a pre-Isitra art, as it were. The important thing about it, but the interesting thing about it, is never mythological. It's never mythological. It's uh, scenes of uh, daily life and ritual, just like the ones uh, on this um, full-size wooden throne with a rounded back, as we saw before, uh, from uh, Verrucchio. You can see the kind of material that is uh, preserved. There are many of these stones, but this one has is exceptional in having carving on the back, and it has carving of, of um, woolwork uh, with the women and the men being carried. Uh, and the, here there's, at the bottom, there's a mysterious ritual. We don't know what was going on, but these two women are carrying it out, uh, and there are armed guards uh, protecting them, presumably. Um, the, um, the wool work is interesting because uh, here we have a, a loom uh, with the women, very clearly, uh, are they, they're women very clearly because they have the long braid in back, which is a very popular 7th century um, uh, 
costume characterization for women. You see the women are on high on high stools, so uh, weaving at a very tall decorated loom, no doubt of wood. Uh, and the reason they do that is the same as uh, another scene, a scene of one of the early scenes of Sichua art, uh, which is actually from uh, Bologna, a pendant, a small pendant, about four or five inches, uh, women on round back thrones, working at the wool, and there is one also, uh, she's been all the way up, <laughs> she's actually been put on the second floor, uh, because the point is, once you put all the, uh, um, you know, once you prepared uh, the, the loom, then you want to make a piece of cloth that is as long as possible. So this is how they do it. And here on the other side are women, again, sitting on the high thrones, uh, the one on top spinning and the others working on the wool. Uh, now, near the, um, very long-lasting, very long-lasting, uh, here is a, a belt plaque uh, from Este, the Veneto, uh, with a woman serving the man. It's interesting that the, the women don't have the same role as they do in Etruria. They, they, they uh, imitate Etruscan costumes and customs, but not, you know, the, the idea of the man and the woman, the couple that you always find in Etruria. Uh, so here the man is reclining, actually, at this point, and both of them are dressed in this uh, uh, sort of plaid pattern. The woman wears uh, tall, local boots and always has her head covered. And they are uh, using bronze situla, like this one. Uh, what, do they, what do the situlas show? Well, banquets and uh, the power of the Lord. So you have... Um, the, the uh, procession of soldiers below, and then on top you have the banquet with uh, um, amusements and uh, musicians and um, uh, wine uh, and men with uh, different different shapes hats, perhaps giving their rank, <laughs> you know, uh, according to the, um, the the size and the shape of their hats. Um, the citulas were very important. Look at look at that wooden citula holder, if you would, no doubt made of wood. Uh, it, you know, proudly displaying all the sil like the silver cabinet, you know, of the uh, uh, of the family. Uh, and here you have um, uh, the um, uh, interesting um, um, spectator sports, which are like the Greeks. They didn't know that. Um, they have these strange barbell uh, boxers with a, uh, a very handsome prize uh, for the winner. And uh, we'll see both of these, what happened, what, what they, what, what, where they come from, uh, and uh, chariot racing. So here's another Benvenuti situla, and here you have uh, the same kind of scenes with orientalizing animals. So what you've got is, is people who are either real or represent, you know, an ideal, uh, and then animal friezes. Uh, and here you have a uh, dress centaur, uh, and here's a very charming bronze centaur, Etruscan bronze centaur. So that dressed, you may have noticed, right? They're wearing pants, not naked. Uh, so the, the another figure on this uh, uh, situla 
uh, is this man sitting on a what is evidently a bronze throne, um, holding up his cup, wearing a big hat and pointed boots. And he looks very much like the well-known uh, uh, cowboy from um, uh, Murla, or Poggio Civitate, uh, near uh, Cusi, also representing on the roof men and women, apparently, with animals. So really the, the, the kind of uh, uh, personality, <laughs> personnel, that populates the, the situlas is really quite similar. Now, spectator sports, I said. Um, the barbells are very strange because they seem to be light. They, they, they look like weights, but they're clearly not. Uh, and there are two examples, and one of them is on an Etruscan urn. Now, I think here, clearly, the, the influence goes the other way. That is, they, the, um, the, Etruscans, the Etruscans knew of the strange custom, and there is this example, there's another example, also with Gorgons holding them, uh, from East Greeks. Uh, the, uh, it, it was suggested that maybe they thought of this custom as a barbaric custom, and therefore they had, you know, the Gorgons uh, uh, shown uh, using it on this Etruscan uh, necamphora. And the same situla has uh, a custom of uh, chariot racing that's very risky and dangerous, uh, which is to tie your reins around your waist. And that gives you more control, but obviously is very dangerous. And this you find in Etruscan art, very clearly. Here, they make a big deal of it with, with actually a knot at the end. Uh, and um, the, the, the Romans just took it over. So this is interesting as a uh, as a, uh, an example of um, you know um, mediation. Now the symplegma uh, is a polite term that archaeologists use for the sexual embrace, um, and uh, there are quite a few of them in situa art. I have just chosen the one that's on this very elaborate uh, swan bed. The others are usually seated. Uh, but here, you see that they seem to be in a room of their own. And by the way, this is in Etruria, uh, near Modena. And so you see that there's a man and woman talking to each other, <laughs> which you don't find in the situa. Um, and so here, uh, is the idea. Why this emplegma? Well, it's part of the aristocratic lifestyle. You know, it's a little like what they, the, the, the kings and queens uh, had to, you know, marriage is very important for the dynasty. It shows your, your, your place in society. And I, I believe that there was this ritual where I think on the wedding night, you know, the courtiers had to be present to make sure that this was going on. And so sometimes when it's more public, I, I think of that. But uh, here it's, it's clearly part of the lifestyle. This is an important thing. It's a marriage. It's a consummation of the marriage. And the only example that's like that in Etruria is the Tragliatella urn from way down in Cerveteri, um, where you have uh, figures very much like the Situa art. You have the procession of soldiers down below. Uh, you have most 
many people have been fascinated by the, this this figure that excuse me this uh, image that sh that says Truya, and they say oh it's a Trojan game or it's a labyrinth and this is and and these are um, uh, Theseus and Ariadne and she's giving him you know the ball of thread, uh, but in fact. Um, and there are two symplegmata here, and it's sort of this double bunk. Uh, nobody knows why there are two of them. <laughs> nobody does. There have been some pretty wild guesses, but nobody really knows. Um, but down below, what, what's interesting about this is that, um, that the three figures are labeled and these are clear, this is clearly the family that commissioned this, the, the, this, uh, pot, the Taliatella urn. Because she is late, she is called me Thesathen, uh, he is called me Mamarke, and the little girl is called me Walelia. <laughs> so, um, that is also, in this case, you have mythological images that have been, uh, translated into, you know, uh, Aristocratic, aristocratic scenes. A remarkable find, which hasn't even been published yet, was uh, exhibited in an exhibit last year uh, it, it called Venetkens on the Veneto, the early Veneto. And this situla, if, if it had not been, if it did not come from a, 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 a tomb, nobody would believe that it was genuine. You know, uh, above you have three rows, two rows of identical figures. And I don't know why they're identical. Maybe it's to show, you know, how many people he's, uh, the Lord is in, is in charge of. Uh, but then reading from right to left, like the Etruscan alphabet, okay, you have, what do you have? Well, boy meets girl. Right? Boy meets girl. Girl accepts boy. Gives him a chinchuck, accepts him. Uh, boy and girl decide to get married, right? And then there are four scenes of their consummation. I mean, it's very energetic consummation. And here they are. Uh, they're, they've got a woman holding household implements. I don't think that this one is about to bash them on the head. Uh, but you see that here they're standing up and she's standing nearby and over here, uh, they are on, a, I think, is that the one with the chair? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and she's, it's so energetic that she's always holding on to something, you know, uh, not to fall over. So you've got several of these. Uh, and then finally the one in the proper, you know, matrimonial bed. And then on the last one, you have the obvious conclusion, right? The baby is born. <laughs> Uh, and the, there have been uh, other figures. Th this one is standing up, which was the way, proper way to have a baby with women helping her. Um, but there have been very few of these birth scenes. Very few. Uh, you, you don't have a lot uh, in, in Etruscan or even, I think, in Roman art. Uh, but here you have it at the very end. And as luck would have it, uh, this was found in 2013, 
It was no, it was found in two, 2012, and it was exhibited, but not yet published. And in 2011, <laughs> there was found another birth scene. Um, and the, when you get, oh no, it's not in this Etruscan news, it's in another Etruscan news. Um, Philip Perkins, I'm not sure whether the article is out yet or not, but he has published it. And, and the, these, however, are, they, they must be magical for this case, because they are stamps on little shards, shards from a Podrocola. And, and why would they have this on a stamp? You know, other, I don't know. There are other possibilities. But anyway, here they are. Uh, and here, you don't quite, you're not sure about the little arms of the baby, you know, whereas on the Citula, you really do uh, see them quite clearly. So, uh, here is, uh, again, Etruscan and, uh, you know, northern um, uh, similarity. <laughs> Uh, leg and mouth, uh, is a, um, very frequent motif in Etruscan art. Tom Rasmussen has written about it just recently. Uh, here in the, uh, lower left, you've got the lion with a human leg in his mouth. And the Etruscans were very fond of this. Uh, and this is typically Etruscan. Only Etruscan. Right? Um, it, it must arrive, I mean, recently Camporeale and Rasmussen have both written about it. Camporeale, uh, 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 talks about how it develops from, you know, man and animal and then animal comes first. But they're very, very frequent and you can always tell it's Etruscan. And then it becomes the head and mouth, of course, in Celtic art. I said I wouldn't talk about Celtic art, but this one uh, is uh, uh, appropriate. And here you have the, the animal with the head coming out of its mouth. Uh, here you have one on the rim of a schnabelkane. And here you have one with a, with a jug lost, uh, which is an Etruscan one, right? Sabariano. Uh, the, uh, the, one of the most charming ones is this one from, um, uh, from Etrusco-Corinthian art by the Marsiliana painter who loved this and other intriguing uh, figures. You may have seen the one of uh, last time she may have shown the one with a possible human sacrifice. Um, so uh, the, here is one from, uh, here is a leg and mouth from Cerveteri, two legs of the mouth uh, up here. This is very interesting, also rather recent uh, find. A, an incised bouquetto with um, uh, inscriptions. Uh, this is Metaya, Medea. Uh, this is Titale Daedalus. And uh, here are some young men carrying um, a cloth that is called Kanna. And recently that has been uh, really properly interpreted. Uh, Kanna is related to Kanapa, Cannabis. Uh, and it is the hemp that they sails are made of, and so this was the Argonaut sail, uh, which is being put away the way you do. Uh, so it's interesting to see this motif actually in monumental form in another very new find that is now in the Cortona Museum. Uh, this is sacrificial funeral platform uh, attached to a tomb, and somehow they had not excavated it before, and now uh, it appeared, and you see it in the museum. Uh, there are two of these uh, images at the foot of the stairs, so they're really monumental. And you have 
the the um, uh, lion. It's not a sphinx as sometimes said, but a lion, and he's uh, mauling. He's about to maul the man, uh, and has his head in his mouth. And the man, meanwhile, is plunging a dagger into the side uh, of the uh, uh, of the animal. It's also interesting, since this is Etruscan, that uh, one is male, one of the lions is male, and the other is female. So you have couples in there. Uh, continuities in later times. Uh, the amber spindle we saw from Viduccio has its equivalent uh, in the second century uh, in Roman times uh, when it was also a sign of status. And it was found, interestingly enough, in, in, the, um, in, in the little box with the wooden doll of a little girl, Trifaina. Um, so really, I mean, 700, you know, almost a 1,000 years. Uh, and here we have uh, also the continuity. There's a situla, and there's a situla maker on a Roman um, uh, a stele, uh, still making situlas and sewing them, evidently. Um, one of the most remarkable that has been written about quite a bit by, uh, partly by me, at, uh, much by Mario Torelli, who thinks he's identified the family. Uh, the Verrucchio uh, throne that we saw before with this decoration, wooden with, uh, um, you know, uh, bronze uh, studs. And then the marble throne, uh, the Corsini chair, uh, also decorated. Um, and with scenes including the barbells, scenes of situla art, uh, they've just added, however, a sacrifice, which was something you didn't see in the situla art, which is Roman. And the, the idea is that these are both full-size thrones. In fact, somebody wrote the Etruscan News and said, oh, we have, you know, we have these two interesting chairs which are very comfortable. Can you tell us what they are? And they were models of the Corsini chair. Apparently, a lot of these copies were made, you know, in the, uh, around the 19th, uh, the, the early 19th century, early, the, um, late 19th and 20th century. Uh, so that would be a family uh, that has been maybe with Julius Caesar, you know, in the north, has known, has, has seen Sicula art, and it's really the equivalent of the scenes that we have, the Egyptianizing scenes, you know, uh, in Pompeii and elsewhere, where you have uh, the reference to, you know, the current events, right, uh, and uh, uh, the Egypt at that time. So, uh, again, a thousand years apart, and it, the, the, the head and mouth just goes on forever, head and mouth. In fact, my dining room chair and others, too, still has, a, it's not a head and mouth, but it still has the animal claws, right, uh, like this. And so this is a, a very large Tarastanoi in, in uh, France, southern France, uh, in um, um, central Italy. You have all of these capitals uh uh, Romanesque capitals uh, showing different uh, different uh, situations with lions and the people they are eating. Uh, very often, of course, they start from the legs up, as somebody says, and only the head uh, comes out, as in the case of this uh, a dragon with a mouth with a 
monk in its mouth uh, from the 14th century. So, thank you. <laughs>